You're listening to a recording of the launch of Medac's latest briefing, the public health case for a Green New Deal. The briefing launch took place on the 8th of April 2021. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Dr. Helen Stokes-Lampard, the Chair of the Academy of Royal Medical Societies and Chair of the Board for the National Academy for Social Prescribing, Guppy Bowler, the Chair of Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and author of the influential Reimagining Public Health Report, published by Commonwealth, Hannah Martin, co-director of Green New Deal UK, who are campaigning across the UK for a transformative Green New Deal, Dr Andrew Harmer, a senior lecturer at the Centre for Global Public Health, MedAct member and one of the briefing's co-authors, and Dr Anya Gopfer, a public health registrar, MedAct member and also a co-author of the briefing. We hope that you enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone and thank you for coming to tonight's event. Uh, We're really excited to be launching this report, the public health case for a Green New Deal. Um, I'm just going to briefly introduce myself and then I'll hand over to my colleague Ben. Um, I'm Hill, I'm the research and policy manager at MEDAC, my pronouns are they, them. Um, And before I hand uh, back to Ben, I'm just going to take us through a few links, which will remind you of at the end of the the event tonight as well. If you're interested to download the report, you haven't had a chance to read it yet. You can do that by going to link.medac.org slash H4GND. Um, So that format link.medac.org works for all of these links. If you're interested in getting involved in Medac's work um, with a climate and health group, go to link.medac.org slash CHG, Climate and Health Group. And if you're interested in getting involved in the MEDACT Research Network and helping to uh, co-author briefings like the one that's been produced tonight by um, a collaboration of, I think, 19 people in total, then go to link.medac.org slash MRN. Um, And of course, we'll mention again at the end that this report really is supporting the Health for a Green New Deal campaign, and there'll be an online launch for that the 16th and 17th of April, you can go to link.medac.org slash HGND gathering to find out more. And I'll pass back to Ben. Thanks so much, Hill. Um, So hi, everyone. I'm Ben. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the campaign and programme lead for climate and health at MEDACT. And it's incredible to have 100 people here so far tonight joining us for the launch of this briefing on the public health case for a Green New Deal. And as Hill said, this is part of the foundations of collectively building the Health for a Green New Deal campaign with MEDAT members over the last nine months. Health for a Green New Deal seeks to build mass support in the health community for a transformative Green New Deal and to organise health workers and students to advocate for a just transition to a zero carbon society. Um, And as Hill mentioned, over the last four months, the MEDAT Climate and Health Research Cluster has been working on this briefing, including over, I think, 20 members from all different parts of the health community, nursing, general practice, uh, public health. And just to situate uh, this briefing momentarily, it follows on from the previous climate and health Uh, research clusters briefing that set out the need for health and climate justice at COP26, which is due to take place later this year in Glasgow in November. And it follows um, shortly after 
the recent economic justice briefing on health versus wealth, which explored um, the intersections of COVID, the economy and, and public health policy. And in its introduction, that briefing set out, our economy must prioritize public health because ultimately the very purpose of a thriving economy is to enable good lives. And tonight we're gonna share with you the public health case for a Green New Deal. And we've got an incredible lineup of speakers. We'll be hearing from Anya Gottfried and Andrew Harmer, two of the MEDAT Climate and Health Research Cluster, who are co-authors of the briefing, alongside a fantastic panel of Professor Helen Stokes-Lampard, Guppy Bowler and Hannah Martin. So we're first gonna hear uh, from all of the speakers, Hill and I are gonna be introducing them in turn. We're then gonna have a, a short break. We're so grateful for you all joining us at the end of a long day, but we need a time to stretch our legs. Then we'll have 20 minutes or so for questions. And we're gonna then conclude this evening by hearing from MEDAT members across the country who are starting to organize for health for a Green New Deal. Um, so thank you, and we really hope you enjoy this evening. And as Hill mentioned, please start sharing any questions you have in the chat box, and we'll be collating them throughout to, to ask in the Q&A section. Um, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen and then introduce our first speaker of the evening. Dr. Helen Stokes-Lampard is a GP principal, chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, the body representing all Royal Colleges and faculties, chair of the board of the National Academy for Social Prescribing and professor of GP education. And she was chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners until November, 2019. And we're really grateful and excited to have um, Professor Helen Stokes-Lampard with us this evening. So over to you. Well, thank you so much, Ben and Hill. Are you hearing me okay? I'll take that as a yes. Uh, so look, as you said, I'm, oh, sorry, let me start. It's an absolute privilege to be here. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm still a frontline doctor, a GP in the Midlands, in Litchfield to be specific, but as Ben sort of alluded to the fact, I've got a few other interests that are relevant for tonight. Now, what he didn't mention is that I'm married to an engineer who works in hydrogen fuel cell technology, so I have more than a passing interest in clean green energy. I'm chair of the Academy of all the medical royal colleges, and for the doctors of you present, it's probably one of the medical organisations that you know least about, but is probably has touched every part of your professional career so far. Um, but previously, I was chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners, and I helped drive them to be the first royal college to divest from fossil fuels and to be an active member of the UK Health Action Alliance on Climate Change, as well as promoting the Green Impact Toolkit for GP surgeries. I'm a member of the NHS Net Zero Expert Panel, although my expertise is how the NHS functions, not that clever stuff. The prof title is from the University of Birmingham, where I'm technically a professor of general practice education, but I don't do a lot of that nowadays. But my final hat is that just over a year ago, at the request of the Secretary of State for Health and Care, I became chair of this brand new organisation, the National Academy for Social Prescribing, which sounds rather grand, but it's a very grounded organisation. 
a registered charity which works to bring together all interested parties in the social prescribing space. So what I thought I will do is I'll spend some time framing the, the discussion for the evening. I won't talk about the detail of the report, that's for others to do. Um, and I'd like to start by talking about the fact we're in this COVID tinged world. And when no novel coronavirus 19 came into being, the world changed forever. And it became a world where inequity and the social determinants of health have a very tangible and immediate adverse impact on survival from infection. Now, we all knew they were always massively important, but COVID has made them urgent too. <clears throat> Can I also suggest that we don't use the term post-COVID? They won't ever be post-COVID, just this new normal where COVID's part of our lives. We've got the light and the hope of vaccines with us, and we can see the world quite soon where we have survived the pandemic, so we'll certainly be post-pandemic, but we will have adapted our lives and our working practices at almost every level, and nothing is going to be quite the same again. We're at an inflection point, and that is a good time to take stock and to plan. So I'm now going to share what the Academy of Medical Royal College's approach to the future is. And I hope you'll see how well it aligns with so much for what you're aiming for. So I'm going to offer sustainability as an umbrella that we use to bring challenges together. Three pillars of sustainability of our planet, our workforce and the NHS more widely. So first, sustainability of the planet and our responsibility as healthcare professionals as well as citizens the green agenda, if you like. And let's face it, we all realize that environmental sustainability is a profoundly bigger challenge than COVID-19 is to our long-term well-being. We also know that what's good for our health is almost always good for our planet too. And we know that we can all survive by traveling far less and living less environmentally harmful lives. Let me mention those two other pillars of sustainability. I'm getting my words mixed up. The second pillar is the sustainability of medical careers. Now, traditionally at the academy, we've focused on medical students to mid-career doctors, but we're now widening this to consider people from their earliest thoughts of entry to medicine and all healthcare professionals to our long retired colleagues. How can we better nurture colleagues, make their training and careers rewarding and fitting for the times in which we live, training with eyes to the future and respecting, but not clinging to the past? <clears throat> Our future training must ensure we're developing doctors who completely understand the need to be patient-centered, who truly understand the social determinants of health, the challenges of health inequalities and digital exclusion. We need doctors that understand their roles as leaders in the new landscape, that understand how the whole system works, that have a great generalist background, irrespective of subsequent specialism. Doctors who are equipped to supervise and support teams of other health and care professionals to ensure that patients get the complete care package that they need, one that fits them as a whole person. Future doctors need to be exceptionally good communicators, translators, if you like. And if we can all, whatever healthcare professional, communicate better with our patients and work with them, if people feel valued, included, and part of the healthcare process, they get so much more out of their care and in turn, they become our greatest allies to fight for the NHS for the future. But we also need to ensure that we have sufficient numbers of doctors and other healthcare professionals in every part of our country. We all know the challenges of under-doctored areas which exacerbate health inequalities. And I'm not gonna talk now about the global perspective, but I have pretty strong views about that too. 
but our current UK structures celebrate and encourage super specialism in highly specialized centers. So we need to incentivize excellence in generalist clinical practice and incentivize working in the less glamorous areas. But thirdly, it's the sustainability of our NHS in all four nations. <clears throat> what will ensure that comprehensive state-funded universal healthcare can endure for another 70 years or more? And I believe that we need to rethink healthcare, or at the very least reframe it. What I mean is, let's start with the citizen, the person in their own social and domestic situation, empowered to live their best, healthiest and most rewarding life. I'm not going to reiterate the social determinants of health again, we all get them. But having access to good education, living in reasonable housing with people who care for us, based in an environment that supports healthy, sustainable living, that involves communities, local government, employment, and all those factors that we know impact on health inequalities. So when people then need advice about basic health and well-being, they're informed about where to go and how. They're digitally supported and enabled, and they have accurate, timely, personalised information at their fingertips or available to them locally. But when, then, when there are real medical issues, the point to which we call people patients, healthcare entry points are clear. They're unambiguous, they're easy to navigate, joined up, and the people remain considered as a whole person. And of course, when serious medical things are happening, the system responds to those, communicates seamlessly within itself and does what it needs to do, but always remembering the whole person so that the NHS and care system does not treat people in parts for longer than it absolutely has to. And that's rethinking medicine in a summary, starting with a person, not starting with institutions. Of course, it's much, much bigger than medicine. It's a whole society approach. Now, I don't think this is radical. It's common sense. And I think you of all people get this. But it is flipping much of the way our current structures are set up. Structures that currently start with big hospitals and super specialities and work from there. And there are myriad initiatives already trying to do this. Scotland have had realistic medicine. Wales have had prudent healthcare. And those are a great start of this. And NHS England have invested heavily in personalised care, evidence-based interventions, over-medicalisation, ageing well, getting it right first time, great examples. But ironically, those are often done in isolation. So I believe we can go much further if we choose to, and we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to have an honest conversation about the care, <coughs> excuse me, the doctors should and should not be delivering, where that care should take place and what our patients should and should not reasonably expect. So we start the medical journey with the citizen, not the institution, resetting our relationship with health and well-being, and rethinking medicine in a practical, accessible way. And this is where my interest in social prescribing comes in. The National Academy for Social Prescribing defines social prescribing as the process of supporting people via social prescribing link workers to make community connections to discover new opportunities, building on their individual strengths and preferences to improve health and well-being. And we seek to ensure that everyone can access the support they need to help them live their best life, whatever their medical and care needs are. We called our vision a social revolution in healthcare. As a GP, I've always known that to achieve the greatest medical success requires a complete understanding of the social elements of my patients' lives, not just the physical and psychological. And this thing we now call social prescribing has existed for as long as medical professionals and indeed anyone who has insight into the human condition and gives advice has been happening. 
And I like to say that social prescribing is what GPs, religious leaders, bartenders and hairdressers have always done. People who connect people with others, seeking to help them, starting with strengths, not focusing on deficits, building confidence, skills and demedicalizing solutions. So my colleagues on the panel will talk to you shortly about the detail of this great new report, The Public Health Case for a Green New Deal. And I'm no expert, but I do care. And I do believe that we can all think global whilst we act local. And my time's nearly up. So I want to go quickly back to our COVID tinged world. Perhaps the most exciting opportunity ahead is to start to reset our patients' relationship with the healthcare system. And I believe that we have a once in a generation opportunity to have an honest conversation about the care that doctors should and should not be delivering, where care should take place and what our patients should and should not reasonably expect so that we start the medical journey with a patient, not the institution, rethinking medicine in a practical, accessible way. And I believe our role as doctors and healthcare professionals is to do everything that we can to ensure that these apocalyptic predictions do not happen and that we must be part of solutions, not just amplifying problems. After a truly grim year, we're also entering a time of hope where despite the media rhetoric and political squabbling that drags us all down, there are bright sparkling gems of positivity and promise for the future. And we are all truly privileged to be doctors and healthcare professionals. And together, I know that we can achieve amazing things. So thank you so much for the opportunity to set the scene tonight. Um, back to you, Ben Hill. Thank you so much, Dr. Stokes Lampard. That was a brilliant way to start the evening, a really overarching talk. Please call me Helen, thanks. Thanks, Helen. Um, uh, without further ado, I'll pass over to our next two speakers, both of whom are members of the Medac Research Network and specifically the Climate and Health Group within that. Um, so I think Ben is gonna share their slides. And first of all, we're gonna hear from Dr. Andrew Harmer, uh, who is a senior lecturer in global health policy at the Centre for Global Public Health at Queen Mary, University of London, and uh, a member of the MEDACT Climate and Health Research Cluster, uh, and a contributing author of The Public Health Case for a Green New Deal. Um, then we're going to hear from Dr. Anya Gompert, uh, who is a public health register, who's worked as a clinical leadership fellow at the Health Foundation, contributing to its work on the role of the NHS as an anchor institution. Uh, Anya is a member of the Faculty of Public Health's Climate Emergency Committee and also a contributing author of tonight's briefing, The Public Health Case for a Green New Deal. So over to you, Andrew and And Anya. Okay, uh, good evening, everybody. Um, it's, uh, it's great, it's uh, really exciting to be part of this um, uh, research team. Um, uh, as Hill mentioned uh, previously, uh, Anya and I are, are part of a broader research team of, I think he said 19 people. So we're just the talking heads um, and all of the hard work um, is, uh, it's, it's a collective effort. Um, my contribution will be to uh, introduce um, a few, can we go to the next slide? Uh, yeah, so my, so my contribution will be to uh, introduce the, the first four points and the first of the, of the policy demands of the report, so decarbonising the energy system. I hope that's okay with you, Anya. Um, um, so yeah, you can see what we're, what we're going to cover. Um, and this, in essence, is the, 
is the structure of the of this exciting report. Um, and we're going to try to navigate that as best we can, pick out some of the highlights, um, but um, of course, urge you to read uh, the incredibly well-referenced report. I think there's over 160 references. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous piece of research. So please do, please do read it um, in full when you get the chance. Um, okay, so should we go to uh, the next slide? So, um, so yep. Yeah, so my first slide: um, our economy is making people and planet sick. Um, most of you will be familiar with the term the Anthropocene. Um, we want to introduce you to a different term called the Capitalocene. Not quite so easy to say, but um, really important, and I think it's important for two for two reasons. Um, the first is that the the term the Anthropocene um, kind of reinforces the idea that um, the Anthropos, uh, so humanity, um, is somehow set apart from nature. Um, that the Anthropocene is, is our era um, and that it belongs to us. Um, but of course, um, we, we share the planet with all, all other life. Um, it's, it's just that our actions are currently rapidly diminishing uh, the planet's biodiversity. Um, so capitalism shifts away from this kind of binary us and nature um, kind of um, relationship. Um, the second reason um, for using the term capitalism is, is to draw attention to the obvious fact um, that it's our economic activity, uh, specifically capital accumulation, uh, that's driving inequality, biodiversity loss, and, and global warming. Um, I mean, capital behaves a bit like a virus, um, and like a virus is, it's spreading exponentially um, with unfair, unhealthy, and ultimately unsustainable consequences. Um, so the report um, distinguishes between direct uh, and indirect negative health effects. I, I can just pick out a, um, an example from each. And um, the example that I pick out from the report of direct negative effects uh, is what is chillingly uh, described as um, the deaths of despair. So you will know that refers to um, a collective term for deaths associated with alcohol consumption, drug use and suicides. Um, and one piece of research that we um, that we use to um, illustrate that point comes from um, a study of um, uh, young men in Scotland. Um, and over the last 40 years, um, they noticed that um, uh, mortality amongst that group um, from drug related mortality had increased from one to 43 deaths per 100,000. Um, and they identified um, economic pressure, um, and just a breakdown in social support structures um, as primary causes. Um, so that's a direct um, negative effect um, um, on health of, of our economy. Um, indirectly, um, we can point to the effects of um, um, climate change. Um, um, the World Health Organization has provided a ballpark estimate of 250,000 
uh, annual deaths between 2030 um, and 2050, but that's widely considered to be a gross um, underestimate. Um, so, I mean, the, the basic message is that we need to rapidly decarbonize our economy, and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. Okay, so can I go to the next slide? Um, okay, so we're, we're talking about the Green, the Green New Deal. Um, and this is inspired by um, Franklin de Roosevelt's New Deal, uh, a response to the uh, Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, the green in the, the Green New Deal um, really requires a set of social uh, and economic reforms, um, which are necessary in the face of climate breakdown, um, local and global, social and economic inequality and injustice. Um, I mean, there are um, a number of variants of the Green New Deal globally, um, um, but I think they're all grounded um, in a vision of justice and economic sustainability. Um, just in terms of economic sustainability, um, I mean, we just can't continue uh, along the path of 3% GDP growth, um, which is the standard uh, measure of good of a good uh, economy. Um, I mean, if you just do some basic maths, um, a global economy that grows at 3% per year will quadruple in size by, by mid-century. Um, and it'll be 20 times bigger by the end of the century. I mean, that's just simply unsustainable. And we can't hide from that basic fact. Um, in terms of justice, we know that our um, current economic model impacts unjustly on women, the young, people of color, and those either unemployed or in precarious, low-paid employment. Um, but we also know that if, if carbon-intensive jobs are going to be decommissioned, um, and they will have to be, um, it's unfair to simply abandon workers in those industries to their fate. So they have to have jobs to go to. And so a just transition um, would ensure a sustainable economy that protects jobs and livelihoods. Um, okay, the next slide, please. Okay, I mean, no, no surprises here to learn that climate change is a major public health challenge. Um, the Lancet Commission on Health and Climate Change, it, it produces regular uh, reports on the state of climate change and public health. Um, and um, in 2015, uh, it, it pulled no punches about, about this, concluding that the effects of climate change are being felt today and future projections represent an unacceptably high and potentially catastrophic risk uh, to human health. Um, you know, but, but you know this. Um, uh, open any newspaper and you will read daily reminders of this impending catastrophe. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, I was reading in The Guardian that climate change could increase the severity of the allergy season by 60%. I mean, both of my children are asthmatic, so that will affect them directly. Um, um, and that's just one example, but every day we are hearing more and more examples of that. Um, 
but there's also um, an equity dimension to all of this. Um, so everybody knows um, Sir Michael Marmot and his um, um, health and inequality studies. And, and last year, he, he, he led a, a research team that reviewed um, 10 years since the publication of his first report. Um, the new report, Build Back Fairer, um, reaffirmed the central message um, that health and inequality are inextricably linked. Um, even before COVID, Marmot shows that improvements in health expectancy have stalled um, and declined for the poorest 10% of women. The health gap has widened between wealthy and deprived areas, and those living in deprived areas in the northeast of the country can expect to live five years less than those living in deprived areas in, in London, for example. Um, I think COVID-19, though, has, has demonstrated quite clearly um, the mutually reinforcing relationship between the economy and public health. Um, it's not either or. Um, the point is we need an economy that's fit for purpose. Um, on the one hand, public health requires an economic system change. You know, the benefits from public health will accrue from um, an equitable, just and sustainable economy. Um, but on the other hand, um, a Green New Deal is all the more compelling when understood through a public health lens. So that's why I think it's really important to um, focus on the Green New Deal and public health because both are mutually reinforcing. Okay, next slide, please. Um, okay. Um, okay, so the, there's a lot going on in this slide. Um, um, I'm going to talk about global justice being at the heart of a Green New Deal, and then what could a Green New Deal look like at the local level. Um, I mean, the way we, we kind of think about global justice being at the heart of a Green New Deal, um, we've got some examples there. We've got climate reparations, anti-extractivism, and migrant solidarity. And I think these three things are, are really important. Um, climate reparations come, come in when you you know, reflect for a moment on the fact that wealthy nations are wealthy um, off the back of, of poor nations. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no getting around that. Um, uh, the UK has been industrializing since the, the 1850s and it's done that because it's a colonial um, empire and it took advantage of that. Um, and as a consequence, it has a, um, a climate emissions debt um, and it has, to, it has to pay back that debt in some way. So we need to be honest about the need for climate reparations. Um, I mean, the converse of that is that um, um, the impacts of climate change disproportionately impact countries in the global south, uh, which currently endure 82% of the costs associated with climate breakdown and 83% of the deaths. Okay. Um, so anti-extractivism, um, you know, we can't fool ourselves into thinking um, that a, um, a transition to a green um, energy system um, is going to just happen out of thin air. We are going to have to extract uh, minerals and metals, um, and we can't just take that from, um, from countries in a kind of a, a neo-colonial um, way. Um, 
And um, in terms of migrant solidarity, I mean, we really have to respect um, the right to move um, and the right to stay. I think we can probably discuss later what a Green New Deal look, would look like at the local level. Um, but, you know, there are opportunities to advance economic democracy through community um, health well-building. Um, NHS trusts and other health bodies are well-placed to act as anchor institutions. And just local activism, get involved. Um, so these are our five policy demands and we structure our uh, reports around those five. Um, Anya is going to be talking about the, the last four. I'll just very quickly uh, describe the first one and then pass on to um, Anya. So next slide, please. Yep, okay. So again, um, I can very quickly um, pick out some key points here. Um, fact of the matter is that we're getting through 10 million barrels of oil every day. Um, and we can't do that anymore. <laughs> we can't have an economy that's based on fossil fuel extraction. Um, there's inequity in terms of access. Um, and we are in the wealthy countries in the UK consuming more than the planet can support. Um, um, and the public health impacts of extraction um, are very clear. Um, it's not just the case that um, um, in terms of say mining, for example, 1% of the global workforce accounts for over 8% of total fatal occupational in, uh, injuries, or that those least able to support themselves and respond live in the least healthy um, um, areas of the country. Um, uh, air pollution, which we'll cover later, is having a devastating impact. Um, so um, in terms of our solutions, um, we are calling for a radical transformation of the, of the energy system. Um, we need to review our emissions targets um, and uh, based on um, clear um, principles around um, equity, uh, based on our capacity to pay and also um, our historical uh, account. Um, and um, we just have to um, focus on democratizing the, the energy economy. Um, so yes, <laughs> uh, that was my attempt to cover an awful lot of information in a short amount of time. Over to you, Anya. Thank you, Angie. I'm going to pick up at the second of our policy demands, which is around green jobs for all. And I think nobody here needs me to re-emphasise how strong the link is between work and health. And that's not just whether you have a job or not, but also the quality of the work that you have and the quality of kind of the benefits that come with that work in terms of maternity pay, pensions and um, the kind of stability of the job that you have. And a lot of um, carbon intensive industries justify themselves and their existence, at least partially on the basis of job creation. Yet with COVID and other factors such as Brexit, we are set to face some significant unemployment challenges in the UK. So there's a really good opportunity and time to make the case for establishing a national green jobs 
scheme in the UK. And that will be good for the economy and good for health, as well as good for climate change. So that's one of our um, specific policy areas that we're focusing on within this report. And if the government were able to invest in this, uh, estimates from the um, Trade Union Council uh, support the fact that 1.2 million green jobs could be created within a two-year period. Next slide, please, Ben. One of our policy areas also focuses on healthy air and air pollution. So air pollution is the largest environmental risk to public health. And I actually spotted some interesting question right at the beginning in the chat around what can we actually do about air pollution in terms of uh, measuring it and trying to do something about it. And I think it's a really important area, which also requires some more evidence about what we can do as healthcare professionals for our patients. Um, but it also is a significant inequalities issue. Air pollution is significantly worse in areas of deprivation and has significant socioeconomic impacts on people in the population. And what we don't have in this in this country is even um, government um, enshrining the World Health Organization air pollution levels into law. And that is something that we absolutely need to protect the health of the population. We also need to change the way we move and the way we move around and incentivize and support transport transformation to improve access to public transport so that that's easy for people to use and to support active travel, so that's walking and cycling. And we also need to address social inequities and consider things such as um, public ownership of the transport system. Next slide, please, Ben. So fourth policy area is quality homes for all. Again, the housing that we live in and houses that people live in also has a significant impact on health, but is also obviously linked to climate change. In the UK, we have some of the worst insulated homes in Europe and many do not meet energy targets. We also have significant issues with fuel poverty and unaffordable private sector rents. So what we need, the solution, part of the solution is to have a national retrofitting scheme that is to insulate and improve the insulation in homes and also ensure that any new homes which are built meet certain sustainability and climate targets. We also need to ensure that houses are kept to a healthy and livable standard and that rent controls and tenants rights are protected. Next slide please Ben. And the final area that we are focusing our briefing on is food and land justice. So this is a huge topic. This is talking about food and the land that's used to create it. And the food and land system accounts for a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a huge area we're talking about. We also have a big problem in that the food system is not producing food and encouraging diets and supporting people to eat diets which are healthy. The UK needs to lead in this area. We need to ensure that people in the UK and globally are helped to adjust their diets and adjust the food system production methods to ensure that land and agriculture restore biodiversity, reduce soil and water degradation, cut carbon emissions 
and sustainably produce healthy food. So this is a big challenge. What I want to just move on to now, if you could move to the next slide, please, Ben, is to summarise where we're up to and then what you can do or what you can start doing on these particular topic areas. And we've summarised here very briefly a Green New Deal, which is centred on public health and tackling multiple issues in society um, with justice at its centre. And what we recognise with this briefing is that health workers and students have a really important role to organise for achieving these five policy areas, good jobs and good quality work, food and land justice, healthy air, decent homes and a zero carbon society. Next slide, please, Ben. So when it comes to taking action, there's a lot more detail within the report, but what we'd really like to just open up discussion with here is some of the key asks within the report that hopefully some of you will be able to take away and start working on in your areas or in your workplaces or with colleagues and with kind of family and friends. First of all, you could set up a local health for a Green New Deal hub. That would be to coordinate collective action and build pressure for key policy changes at local and national levels. There's also the case of lobbying your local authority. Now you can either lobby your local councillors who are the people who would be voting on certain policies within local councils, or you could think about lobbying your director for public health in your local area and asking them to take some of these core concepts into their work within the local council. There's also the opportunity to really think about what it is to be an anchor institution and trying to push your local NHS trust, GP organisations or other healthcare institutions to use their role as an anchor institution to promote good health and wellbeing among the local community. There's also a different idea in terms of going to your trade union, and that can be anybody who works in any sector and is a member of any trade union, and ask for a motion to be passed in support of the Green New Deal. And finally, it might be worth thinking about if you're a member of a Royal College, advocating for your Royal College to endorse the Green New Deal. Now, as I said, this is just some of the actions within the report, and I'd really encourage you to take the ones that you feel would be most su suited to your role or to your current position and where you might be able to make a difference. Next slide, please, although that might be the last slide. That's the last slide. So I just um, want to say thank you to everyone who contributed to this report. This was absolutely a collective piece of work and Andrew and I are the ones kind of putting the voices to it today. And um, the final thing to say is I just think there's a huge opportunity to capitalise on the current situation with COVID-19 and where we are with thinking about recovery policies currently in local authority, in the NHS and across the system to try and embed and advocate for some of these ideas to be considered as we now move forward into um, the post-COVID or kind of stable COVID phase of the pandemic. Thanks. Thank you so, so much, um, Anya and Andrew, for doing a deep um, exploration and, and sharing what all the members of the research group have been working on uh, and really ending on a call to action about what do we do with this and, and how we go forward. So thank you both so, so much. Um, 
Next, I have the real privilege of welcoming Guppy Bowler. She, her, who is a racial justice busy bee committed to building an economic democracy that supports multiracial working class communities to access wealth and resources needed to facilitate collective healing. She has an academic background in public health, which she uses to focus her strategic thinking on the root causes of social inequality and ill health. Um, she most recently wrote an incredible piece, Reimagining Public Health, um, which was a follow-up to her stint as interim director at MEDAT. Guppy is currently chair of the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, and we'll share where you can find out more about Guppy's work um, in the chat. And thank you so, so much, Guppy. It's brilliant to have you here. Hi everyone. I hope um, I'm just going to ask the team to WhatsApp me if you can't if something goes wrong because I can't see everything on the screen. Um, so I was around for the last Green New Deal uh, medic chat last year, and I just feel like this explosion of really exciting energy that's coming out of this uh, briefing and also the campaign idea. So I'm just really excited about being here. Um, and I wasn't sure as to whether to like pedal back some of my chats. I have notoriously quite a lot of um, big chat, <laughs> you'll see in a bit. Um, but just hearing Andrew and Anya talk about uh, some of the concepts behind the briefing. Um, I wrote in my notes earlier today, like our biggest pandemic is capitalism. And I was like, no, 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 that's just way too much. It's way too much, like pedal it back a little bit. But it does feel like we got there anyway. So I'm gonna spend the next like eight minutes talking about, um, yeah, a bit about my concepts around health justice, why the economy is making us sick and how we move forward together. So I've been working in the intersection of um, fields between like climate, health and economic justice for about 15 years, which feels terrifying because um, it doesn't actually feel that long. Um, and when I do public speaking, I normally just have to like present myself as one of these three things. So it's a real privilege to be able to be on this panel and uh, speak as someone who has all three identities, um, as like someone who's a climate campaigner and has a economic justice organizer and a public health academic. And honestly, uh, that I think that is the genius of the Health for Green New Deal campaign more broadly is that it recognizing that any economic transformation would largely be completely ineffective if it did not embrace a public health approach. And, um, did not see health as really the main motivating factor for achieving uh, transformative change in the economy. And this is central to why I apply a health lens to almost all the social issues that I campaign on. After all, it was health that taught me how to care about the climate crisis because the visions that I had for a more equitable society were ultimately meaningless if I didn't foresee a world in which 1.5 degree warming was uh, probably likely to happen. Um, and with this, I've been on a learning journey around uh, using indigenous knowledge to shape my visions of a world outside of extraction. And I noticed that there was a comment in the chat box around like the relationship between the Green New Deal and donut economics and the well-being economy and a few other kind of concepts. All I would say is that ultimately these are repackaged Western uh, framed ideas of indigenous um, knowledge. So I would like go to the source. Um, and refer back to some of that learning. I think it was Gillian who wrote that comment, so that's for you, Gillian. Um, health also taught me about economic justice because it allowed me to see patterns of illness and disease that reflect a history of extraction from marginalized communities and through which I've been learning how to act in solidarity towards reparative justice, being particularly inspired by movement of black lives um, and many black elders here in the UK and abroad. 
how this also taught me about intersectionality because I could see the impact of racial and gender oppression on my own body and as a person of significant other privileges, using that to make a commitment to understand the toxic behaviours that I participate in that are responsible for causing harm on others that are uh, inherent because we live in an oppressive world and we adopt um, and absorb those behaviours. So right, right now I'm learning a lot from about care work through the lens of disability justice. <clears throat> and I'm really excited to hear more from you all later about what is motivating you um, in bringing your expertise in health to the forefront of um, this campaign work. I mentioned I wanted to focus on the idea of health justice and, and what that looks like in um, something that we are collectively working together towards for the Green New Deal. Health justice for me is an absolute foundation of equitable society because the health of a population is really the only indicator we have to understand how the economy is operating. And one thing I forget, um, I think we forget too often is that, you know, health inequalities are unfair and they are avoidable, basically because they're a result of political choices um, that have been created, that have created conditions for ill health to exist. And so a focus on health justice is to commit to uncovering what is making us sick and advocating for structural change that ensures long lasting change with our efforts. And for me, health justice calls for healing beyond the individual, beyond that kind of like quite binary doctor patient dynamic. That um, idea uh, actually began after failing my first year of medical school, a small blessing, which soon enabled me to transition towards public health um, and to have more of a focus on the political and economic determinants of ill health. And as a public health geek, who is also a woman of color with an experience of gender and racial oppression, I'm more and more fascinated by this idea of intergenerational physiological impact of structural inequality and how this plays into long-standing health inequalities within the South Asian population, but of course, within all marginalized communities. This idea is known as biological weathering and it's mentioned very briefly in the paper. Um, it's a very new concept in the UK, but it's so, so, so important, particularly to the Green New Deal. Um, and I would encourage folks to go and check out Race and Health and Centric Lab who are doing loads of work in this area. But I'll also do a shout out to my passion project, Decolonize Economics, because we are seeking to popularize the idea of reparations by thinking about what it would be beyond just thinking about wealth and income, um, and a large part of our work is identifying a range of interventions that would enable collective healing from the trauma of structural inequality within communities who have been impacted by it. And what I'm excited about this is the focus on health justice within our campaigning for a Green New Deal. We open up a more intelligent space and a meaningful conversation about the intersecting impact of structural inequality and environmental destruction. So as a classic, classic lefty, I probably spend too much time on the analysis of the problem um, and where we want to get to rather than the bit in between, which is like the structural policy solutions, uh, which is why I feel really happy that the briefing exists, because it kind of gives us that picture about what we need to do and what we need to focus on. Uh, and when I was reading the briefing again today, there was just like this one line that stuck out for me that was so powerful that it pretty much framed the whole of the rest of this little like few minutes I've got with you. And that is our economy is making us sick. Our economy is making us sick. And in the report, it continues, the paradigm and commercial practices of the heart of the economy harm our physical and mental health, increase inequality and produce the emissions and pollution that are the root cause of the climate crisis. And the briefing goes on to explore how these problems are interconnected, particularly at the point of the economic system, which is interesting because the one thing I think that I felt for a long time as a campaigner is that the idea of the economy is just so vast and so intangible that to grapple with this idea could feel quite overwhelming. 
Um, and it took me quite a long time to like build a mental framework in my head about how these issues interlink and then how we work out what to do with them. But this changed when I read a paper called From Bank to Tank, From Banks to Tanks, sorry, let's say again, From Banks and Tanks to Cooperation and Caring by an organization called Movement Generation, which really empowered me to understand the economic system more. And I would say that I think um, this is also in Donut Economics as well. So if eco, the paper shares, if eco is the Greek word for home, then economy is simply a way to describe our home management. Quite simply, the way we decide to organize our relationship within a place. So when we talk about economics or the economy, we have to keep remembering that the economy is not an objective or a benign structure that sort of just exists and does its thing. The economy is making us sick because it has been designed by a very particular group of people over the last 400 years to focus on one simple goal, and that is to consistently function towards extraction for the sake of profit. It must extract natural resources from the earth and it must extract energy from our bodies. And there is a very particular group of people <laughs> that it extracts more from, and I don't have to go into details about what, who that is. So why is this important? Well, there are two reasons. A, we need to ensure that we're actually critically analyzing centuries old narratives around health that continue to marginalize the very communities that the Green New Deal seeks to work for. And that's because we have enabled the economy to continue to function as this like benign objective, like passive structure, because that is the narrative that we've been told. And we've also managed to um, prevent thinking more actively about why certain groups get ill because of other narratives that exist as well. And so for me, one of the most important things is to really challenge that. These narratives de deny many uh, the chance to live healthy lives because it's the narratives that shape the culture and behavior of the very institutions and professions that exist to support marginalized communities. That's us as health workers. And they do this by further marginalizing them through harmful ideas that we leave unchallenged or worse, we, we accept and participate in unknowingly. So some examples of this, I know Michael Marmot loves like sharing this story about when a minister was asked on the radio what black people could do because they're more susceptible to catching the virus, he responded by saying, not Michael Marmot, the minister, um, yes, black people should wash their hands more. And in the same way that another Tory minister suggested that residents living under airports made the choice to live there and so they should be left to deal with the consequences. Um, okay, I have... Two more bits. <laughs> Hilly was like, move on. Um, yeah, and so if you don't know why that's a problem, then um, feel free to come and talk to me later. Uh, and more importantly, B, is just the idea that the economy can change. The idea that we have choices around the economy and we can change it. And that this is so enticing. This is what's so enticing about the Green New Deal. Um, and we do this with the following ways. In thinking about the generations of communities who have experienced trauma from structural inequality and structural oppression, by connecting with communities who have been denied the rights to live in healthy environments, by being critical of the narratives that we use when speaking about people's experiences of health, and by designing campaigns that find the connecting points and intersections um, that are focused on the economy. And with that, we can be much more strategic for um, building an amazing campaign. And so just circling back to the relevant and necessary health for a Green New Deal, um, I've got three final reflections. First, um, that we see here, um, that what we see here in the briefing is a product of collective organizing. 
a group of committed individuals working together to achieve something is the way in which we practice democracy in our organizing. And it is so essential because in a system that wants us to individualize, we need to commit much more to collective action and collective action is our medicine. Second, that the focus on health is so visionary and so important to move towards a much more connected understanding of social justice that speaks to where we are here in our bodies. And, and Healing Justice London are an organization who often speak to the body as a site of knowledge and the inspiration we gain from tapping into that knowledge is what will ensure us that our health focused campaigns will bring about a process of collecting he collective healing for everyone. And finally, that for all of you on this call who are a bit sort of by the book, which is okay, and I used to be like that as well, the idea that the Green New Deal is transformative because it is going to be disruptive. We cannot achieve goals of health, justice and equity if we are not ready to disrupt. And in many different and, and we can do that in many different ways um, and in ways that meet our needs. So just to finish, I just wanted to give you a moment to reflect on how powerful and exciting this campaign is going to be, especially because you are participating in a process of imagining a different world um, and one that we are trying to build together. And for that, I want to quote one of decolonizing economics favorite authors, Adrienne Marie Brown, um, and she writes, imagination is one of the spoils of colonization, which in many ways is claiming who gets to imagine the future for a given geography. Losing our imagination is a symptom of trauma, reclaiming that right to dream, strengthening the muscle to imagine together as black people is a revolutionary decolonizing act. And that is just to encourage you to seek out insights and knowledge from um, many groups of people who have been thinking about these ideas for many, many, many more years um, before us. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much, Guppy, for that really fantastically inspiring talk. I, I honestly had goosebumps at one point. Um, yeah, genuinely brilliant. I, I won't um, say too much more, but I will introduce our final speaker, um, Hannah Martin is uh, an organiser and campaigner. She's organised with Greenpeace UK, leading their energy and climate team, uh, the UK anti-fracking movement, um, and she supported um, the youth strikes for climate to mobilise. She's now the co-director of Green New Deal UK, organising communities to win a Green New Deal. Over to you, Hannah. Thank you so much. Um... Yeah, I feel a bit like I can't almost want to give like a full five minutes to just absorb every, I was like scribbling down every second sentence that Guppy was saying. So um, yeah, I just need to get my head in the game to say something useful. But um, I guess Ben invited me to speak just for five minutes at the end, just to kind of um, say that, you know, um, Green Needle UK has been going for not very long, to be honest, like a year and a half or so, trying to organise around a Green Needle as well. And I think that one of the things that we are really committed to and really excited about is this building of the kind of, calling it the people's alignment, this sense of kind of there being multiple networks of movements and groups united in this kind of shared vision and the shared vision being a government or broader than that that fights for dignity and justice for all. And that is actually a frame that I've kind of nicked from the Sunrise Movement in the US um, around not just building up kind of a campaign on its own but sort of understanding ourselves as part of a wider movement ecology and I think that's why seeing all of these different um, interconnected campaigns and movements growing and building is so unbelievably exciting and encouraging and I think that 
I'm exceptionally excited to learn so much from this campaign as it develops. I don't think any one Green New Deal campaign is going to like have it all completely nailed because it's such an all encompassing vision and it's such a transformative opportunity. So, um, yeah, that's what I just wanted to mention briefly and we can jump to the next slide then. Um, and yeah, just to say that the principles of the Green New Deal that we're working towards, which we kind of co-collaborated on with a bunch of people from across the climate justice space are very, very aligned with the health for a Green New Deal. And I think that, again, operating in this in this space of not everyone having to use exactly the same words, but potentially everybody sharing that kind of groundedness in what are our broad principles around global justice, around transformation of the economy, I think can help us to align across movements. And that's very much how we're thinking as well. I mean, like Guppy says, you know, I'm not a public health expert in any way, but having this briefing here to be able to use and to kind of draw from the expertise of other movements is absolutely incredible and a real privilege um i just wanted if we jump on uh yeah i pulled out some stuff that from the briefing um but to be honest i'm actually you guys have talked so incredibly about health and the intersections of the green new deal that i don't necessarily feel like i have anything useful to add i think that line that guppy mentioned our economy is making us sick was also the one that really like oh, just got to me in the heart and i think that having that frame as a sort of underlying principle of all of our work, I think is a very illuminating and wise piece um, of kind of knowledge to, to draw from and to be inspired by. So let's go on to the next slide. <laughs> I'm like really rushing through. And um, one thing about this idea of the people's alignment is that I think, you know, from our perspective and things we've been working on is, we feel like there is a real need to build public support. Like these are three things we kind of ask everyone to consider doing in, in their work around Green New Deal stuff is I do think there's a huge amount of sort of latent passive public support for the types of policies and things that we're talking about. Um, but that we need to translate that sort of passive support into kind of active public participation. And I think the only way we really get there is through organizing and is through building that active movement, um, like Guppy said. And that starts with all of us. That starts with you guys here on this call, but it starts with everyone that encounters this sort of vision. But I also think there's a role for our movements to translate that into political power and to kind of sort of build that base of people and that base of public awareness and support that can then kind of um, move and shift um, huge parts of our world and our economy. So that is sort of broadly where our theory of change comes in, which is on the next slide, which is about building people power and political power. So we feel like we need that vocal active base, but we do also need a critical mass of supportive elected officials. And that's why some of the organizing we're doing is more oriented towards um, MPs and things like that. But I think that I think that having that big vision and then nailing it down to, you know, to really hold people to account feels like a really incredible use of everybody's time at this critical juncture. Um, I can't remember what the next slide is doing. So let's move on and see. Um, this just outlines briefly our plan um, over the next year or so, or the next few years. Um, and we want to build Green New Deal hubs um, in you know, as many places as possible to support that local community organizing that can bring about not just sort of leadership development and political education within our communities, but also can really tell a powerful story about the places that really, and the communities that will most, 
benefit from the Green New Deal and most need to be heard and learned from in our pathway and our journey towards it. Um, and then just, I think the next slide. Um, actually, we can skip this one, that's okay. It's just more info about the local organizing hubs, which if anyone's interested, we can um, talk about later. Um, and I just wanted to flag that, yeah, we've been pushing on green jobs over the last few months. We launched a report um, at the end of last year called Green Jobs for All. Um, and that's really because the jobs conversation is not the only conversation to do with the Green New Deal. And there are many fronts that we could push on, but it feels like at a point where, yeah, an estimated nearly 2 million jobs are at risk of permanent loss. It feels like a particularly salient moment to be talking about what is a nourishing job? What is a good job? What is a green job? How can we replenish our economy with meaningful, supported, well-paid um, work that can really improve people's lives for the better? Um, so we can move on, I think. There aren't many more. Let's go on to the next one, Ben. Um, just to say finally that I think for us one of the key parts of the kind of jobs debate is not only to broaden the definition of work and include you know unpaid care work which there is so much going on and so many more women and people of colour are shouldering the burden of a lot of that um, a lot of that in health and childcare and education but also to be really clear that when we say green jobs, we don't just mean hard hats and wind turbines, we mean jobs that nourish life and jobs that increase the resilience of our communities into the long term, because that those are the kinds of jobs that we're gonna really need to invest in to sort of heal from um, the multiple traumas that capitalism has kind of enacted upon different communities. And also just to say that for us, it's really important to define what good what a good job is um, and what that means. And here are some sort of suggestions of what that could look like, um, including unionization and healthy hours and satisfying work and participation, as well as a decent income and job security. And I think that holding that at the forefront of when we talk about jobs will enable it not to become something that can easily be co-opted. Um, so yeah, that's some of our campaigning work we're focusing on. And I'm just really grateful to be here and be super inspired by all of you. Um, if you want to find out more about what we're up to, you can find out stuff there. And I'll stop for now. Thanks so much. Thank you so, so much, Hannah, um, for yeah, really grounding us in how we are situated in a wider movement of lots of groups and organisations organizing for that transformation that is centered and rooted in solidarity and justice and um, so thank you so so much Hannah and thank you so much to all of the incredible speakers um, and your perspectives as always with such like deep discussion we have run a little bit behind time um, as Hannah said before Perhaps instead of taking a break uh, to get a water or a tea and um, just invite everyone to stand up and stretch uh, and maybe just take a deep breath and just absorb all of that wonderful discussion over the next um, minute. And then we'll come back for kind of 10 minutes of some brilliant questions that you've been asking uh, before we hear from some members. First question. Um, I'm going to 
come to is uh, something that is directed uh, perhaps first towards Helen, but also uh, to others if you'd like to chip in, but is thank you so much for your introduction, leadership and vision. How much do you think the Royal College of GPs, but the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and other health institutions, how can they use their voice to, to lobby for these demands and, and addresses a number of the panellists have said about how our economy is making us sick and how do we work and build that power for the demands of the Green New Deal? Thanks, Ben. And thanks. I think that was Artie's question from the chat. And I think it is one worth articulating because um, it was something that both Guppy and Hannah alluded to, really, which is about using the power bases that we have to influence. So each of us as individuals has a conscience and a set of moral values and a, and a passion for doing the right stuff. Um, and then we can align ourselves to a whole range of organisations. One of the challenges, so I do not speak for the Royal College of GPs. I used to be head of it. I am not anymore. I happen to still be a fellow of it, but I'm not on the council or anything, you know, so just to be clear, when my, my, I, I do, however, chair this umbrella organisation for all medical Royal Colleges, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. And one of the difficulties I always had over the years was despite my own personal passions for stuff is the understanding the limits of what a Royal Medical Royal College is and does. It is a membership body that sets standards for doctors in that discipline and it sets standards for the high quality patient care. So for example the charitable object of the Royal College of GPs is to encourage, foster and maintain the highest possible standards of general practice and essentially to work with anybody else it requires to deliver high quality general practice. And those limits are what the Charity Commission binds us to uh, and the rules which you work with. And that is what people are signed up to when they're a member of that organisation. Charities have to be very careful about political affiliation and political activism. Um, and inherently, Royal Colleges have to be conservative with a small c, as in cautious about where they go in terms of political activism. And what nearly every Royal College finds is that they have members who are passionate about many different things and want them to go far further than they can. But they cannot. Their hands are essentially tied. It doesn't, however, mean that they can't uh, support or co-sign things that others do. It may be that they can encourage groups of their members to get together and have networks and, and empower others to do stuff in smaller subsets. So I guess it's understanding those limitations, but you work with the limitations you've got. And what you'll find is that some colleges, I mean, Faculty of Public Health are a great one where they will push the boundaries further because it's easier to justify their involvement in the wider social political space because of the health of the population than it is, for example, I don't know, Royal College of Ophthalmologists that is not to say the ophthalmologists don't do great socially politically correct stuff but it is that if you can see that it is easier to uh, explain to the charity commission why you are going into a certain territory and so on and being a charity gives you a lot of rights and privileges which allow you to work in a more in a very uh, empowered supported and protective way in many ways what it does mean is that if you get a royal college or an institution of that nature that can support something that does actually get deep into the heart of government in terms of influence and impact. So my advice to people is think what you are asking for. You know, I, I would be amazed if you could get a Royal College to sign up to the whole of this, but there are elements of this that are absolutely pertinent and right on. And so perhaps think about your ask, think about which college or organisation you represent um, and what bits are, have they, um, uh, will, will they, uh, Go for. I'm going to keep it quick, but there were a couple of great comments in the chat about uh, Lord Nigel Crisp. Now he's really uh, passionate about high quality housing stock. He's passionate about all this space, but he's taking 
um, a, uh, he's pushing, uh, I can't remember which type of act or thing it is through Parliament fairly soon, but he was interested to see if we could get the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges to support it. And I couldn't because the quality of housing stock was too far out with the remit of every single organisation that my umbrella looks for. But it doesn't mean that I can't help and support him, that I can't do blogs with him, that I can't talk publicly with him about this stuff. So for me, it's about helping you whether you're in a medical royal college or whether you are another healthcare professional, you're all part of professional organisations, each of which has a voice, but understanding their hands may not be as loose as you think they are. Hands are more tied in what we can do to tear your ask, what's realistic, what's doable, what's achievable, um, but know your own power. This is why groups like MedAct are so powerful because you exist, you fill a void that other organisations can't do and that is essential and important. So don't underestimate your own power. I'll stop. You know I can gabble on. Thank but I am happy to take challenge against that because I know people get very frustrated that they want people to do more and go further. But that's okay. We won't let anyone challenge you because we're running tight on time. So uh, <laughs> I'll just move on to, I think we in fact only have time for one more question, sadly. Um, and what I'll do is I'll ask the other four speakers, Hannah, Guppy, Andrew and Anya, no obligation to chip in, but if you'd like to, um, to respond to this question I'm going to read now, just wave your hand at me and I'll come to you each in turn and give you perhaps maximum one minute to respond. And the question is sort of a two-part question. And it's firstly, um, um, question hasn't left their name, but they're wondering about the language we use and how inclusive are we being with the language we use in the climate movement? And secondly, um, are we only speaking to those who already agree with us? So a question about, you know, the language you use, how we use and, and who we speak to with our voice. So um, I don't know if uh, any of you want to come back on either what either part of those, of that two part question. Would you mind just waving your hand so that I can spotlight you or Anya? I'm going to come in one very specific point, which is that I think, for example, language around anchor institutions is, is really powerful for speaking to kind of win-wins. So the way that works as a very brief example is, for example, if there's a recruitment challenge for an NHS organisation, it's about thinking differently about recruitment in that area, but also about providing good quality jobs for people. And by that way, you're providing good quality jobs to your community and have an influence on their health. And I think that it gives you a different way into the conversation that's actually a lot more inclusive than some of the other ways that we can approach some of these topics and has brought a wide range of people into to kind of doing things and, and changing the way that they think about what an NHS organisation means. I'll stop there on that bit. Thank you, Anya. And that might have given some of our other speakers um, time to have a little ponder of the question. Do any of you, um, Guppy, Hannah, Andrew, want to chip in at all? No obligation, as I said, but... I'll just say a quick thing, which is um, I mentioned earlier that I'm notorious for like big words and big concepts. And that's because I, I know exactly who I want to and need to speak to in the work that I'm doing. And like, it's basically you guys. <laughs> um, and that's been the case for the last 10, 15 years. It's like active, progressive uh, medical and health professionals who want to see social change happen and understand, understand and have some analysis. So like that is my cohort. But what I think is really um wonderful is that uh as health professionals who might engage with patients on a day-to-day -day, you have the privilege of experimenting and listening and engaging with like loads of different people a diversity of people on a day-to-day -day basis so 
I choose to use certain words to communicate what I'm passionate about but you also get to like hear and learn from others about what would work and what how you communicate quite difficult concepts or like even just like hear from them about their experience of inequality and their understanding of climate you know on a very kind of natural level so just use that privilege because it's so essential to um yeah moving out of that idea of we're just speaking to people who agree with us because I, I think that it's more like we just never really have these conversations thank you guppy uh hannah yeah i totally agree with that i mean i was i was just want to flag a a piece of research that um, I was involved in last year called Framing Climate Justice, which is a really useful resource um, for, which does a bunch of polling and some kind of more qualitative test, qualitative testing um, of people and which frames work and don't work in trying to communicate, yeah, these quite big systemic concepts, issues, solutions. Um, so that would be something I'd recommend and I can try and find the link to um, pop in the chat as well as a resource. That would be great. Thank you, Hannah. Um, I'm really sorry to everyone else who submitted questions. Um, I'm gonna have to, because we've got 10 minutes left, wrap up the Q&A a little bit abruptly there and hand back to Ben, who's gonna take us through some shout outs from local activists to finish the call. Thanks so much, Hill, and thank you so much to all of the incredible speakers. Um, we're going to tell you a little bit more about where we can continue these conversations. Um, but first, over the last few months, people have been starting to organise for Health for a Green New Deal. And we're really grateful that a few MEDAP members uh, who are doing that all across the country are here to tell us in one minute each who they are, where they're based what they're doing and how you can all get involved. And um, so we're gonna go from south to north uh, and I'm gonna invite Anant up. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so my name's Anant Patel. I'm a consultant respiratory physician uh, in London at the Royal Free Hospital with a particular interest in lung cancer. Um, I grew up on a main road in East London exposed to huge amounts of air pollution. I can't quite believe the environment in which so many people live even to this day. Uh, in my professional work, I see now increasing and actually large numbers of younger people, particularly women, coming in with uh, lung adenocarcinomas, probably as a result of air pollution. Uh, and this is entirely preventable and needs to be prevented. Um, so I got involved, uh, I think, by replying to a tweet from Rob Abrams from Madax. Uh, to help kind of advocate for clean air with the London mayoral elections coming up. Uh, and so that was my kind of uh, route into this relatively recently and uh, really keen to do the right things as someone rightly or wrongly who's trusted, who's listened to, and more and more I work and kind of climb up the healthcare leadership ladder where I work. It's the vocal minority that really get listened to. And, and if we are the vocal minority, then let's make that happen and educate other people and get them involved. Thank you so much, Anna, and how to get involved in the London group is in the chat. Um, next, we're going to hear from Brooke in the East Midlands Medat group. <laughs> um, thanks, Ben. I'm Brooke. Um, I'm from the East Midlands group. I'm a medical student, so I'm fairly new to the game. And um, our 
group is very new. We only started last September, I think. We started having proper meetings. Um, so we cover Derby, Nottingham and the rest of the East Midlands. And our current campaign is slightly different to the to the Green New Deal, but we're trying to get our local councils to divest from their fossil fuel investments. They've got about £180 million invested, which is just insane. And we're hoping that their um, divestment will be a good first step to getting them involved in the Green New Deal and getting them a bit more on board. Um, and I'll pop how you can get involved with our group um, and our campaign. If you're a healthcare worker or a student in the East Midlands, please sign our uh, open letter. Um, I'll pop that in the chat. Thanks. Incredible. Thank you so, so much, Brooke. Um, next, we're going to go to Jess from Sheffield. Um, yeah, hi, I'm Jess. Uh, I'm a medical student as well, based in Sheffield. Um, and I'm one of the coordinators for the like, local MEDAC group. Um, and we've been focusing on some of the um, more like access to healthcare and some of the vaccine stuff recently, but we're actually having a meeting tomorrow um, where we'll be discussing um, how we take the health for a Green New Deal stuff forward, um, looking at um, sort of doing some local lobbying of some of the CCGs, um, the local MPs, um, and how we can work with our unions um, locally and just and getting a bit of a, a network um, between some of the um, other organisers for um, Green New Deal stuff in the local area. So if you're interested um, in anything Medact or um, Sheffield, then you can get involved with us. Um, but yeah, we've got a meeting tomorrow at 6.30 if anybody fancies joining. It'd be really lovely to see you there. Cheers. Thank you so, so much, Jess, and everyone in Sheffield. Uh, next, we're going to hear from Flora in Liverpool. Hopefully, we'll be able to unmute. Can you hear me? All right, sorry, classic Zoom. Hi, so I'm Flora. I'm a post-foundation doctor working in infectious diseases in a big central Liverpool hospital, and I'm also the coordinator for MEDAC Liverpool. Um, so as a group in the past year, we've successfully lobbied our local council to commit to divestment of part of their pension fund from fossil fuels. Um, so continue on there. Um, but we're also actually we've just recently contacted our um, uh, local MP, um, Kim Johnson, um, and are hoping to meet with her to discuss further the um, investment in or uh, supporting green jobs um, in Parliament. So we're just really hoping to ex expand our activities from there. So if you are interested in joining our Green New Deal hub in Liverpool, um, you can get in touch with us via um, our MedAct Liverpool email address, which I can pop in the chat if you've not got it, Ben, um, and also all via the website. And also just to mention that one of my GP colleagues, Dr. Nikki Dowling as well, who is a Royal College of GPs climate champion, um, is also setting up a primary care greener practice network in Cheshire and Merseyside. So any interested local GPs can join a Teams group and I'll pop that link in the chat as well. Thanks. Incredible work, um, Flora and everybody in Liverpool. Next, we're going to hear from Mia in Leeds. Hi, yeah. Um, my name's Mia. I'm a junior doctor in Leeds. Um, we just started our MedAct group again similar to the Midlands one really recently I think about um, November December last year um, we are currently campaigning against the expansion of the Leeds Bradford airport um, so that's like our 
been our big focus, which ties really, obviously, really, really nicely into thinking about green jobs and alternatives and um, alternative transport and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, we're really new and on the lookout for new members. So please get in contact and come and join us. Incredible. Thank you so much, Lee and um, Mia and everybody in Leeds. Um, last but by no means least, Sean is going to speak from Glasgow. Hello, hello everyone. Uh, my name's Shan Ashby. I'm a GP in Glasgow um, and I'm the RCGP West of Scotland Sustainability Rep and have been a member of MedAct Scotland for the last year or two. And over the last six months, I've been working with Ben and Rob and Leslie, who's the um, Scotland coordinator of MedAct to um, build a Health for a Green New Deal movement in Scotland, which has been lovely. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about what we've been doing. We started off by writing a letter to the First Minister um, asking for a just and green recovery from COVID and um, a focus on climate justice at COP26. Um, that, there's a link, I think, that Rob is going to post, hopefully, um, to the letter if anyone wants to sign it. And you can also watch a really cringeworthy video that we made um, that was quite a lot of fun to go along with that on the website. Um, at the moment, we're working towards our climate and health hustings that's going to be held on the 22nd of April which just happens to be Earth Day, which is quite nice. Um, and that's in the lead up to the Scottish elections, which are on the 6th of May. So we're going to have candidates um, from all of the major parties there, and it'll be a good uh, opportunity to quiz them on their priorities in, in health and sustainability. So if anyone wants to come to that, that's on the MedAx events page, and it'll be brilliant to have everybody there. Uh, obviously, <laughs> Scottish uh, members. Um, it's open to everyone in Scotland. There's a bit of a Glasgow focus because most of the reps will be from Glasgow, but everyone's welcome from Scotland. Um, lastly, after that, um, we're going to really be starting building towards COP26 in Glasgow, and that's such an exciting um, opportunity for us as, as healthcare workers in Scotland. So please, please, there's not a better time to sign up, I would say, than now, because um, we're going to be brainstorming ideas and, and we really want as many voices as possible. So uh, again, you can contact MedAct Scotland. The link is, the email's on the website or someone may be sharing it shortly in the chat. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you so much to um, all of the members around the country who are already organising the Health for a Green New Deal. Uh, Hill is going to wrap up and close the evening in under a minute. Thanks, Ben. And thank you to all that, all, all the speakers. Um, Sean, it makes me wish I was still living in Glasgow so I could get involved. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was really inspiring and exciting to see all that grassroots um, activity that's taking place and like to realise that we're, we're not alone, that, you know, we're part of a wider movement. Um, uh, just to close, um, I'd like to thank the uh, amazing panel of speakers for their contributions tonight. Um, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for coming and listening in and for submitting some great questions. Um, and I'll just um, also to thank the Medic Tech team for supporting. Rob is going to continue to post a few links in the chat as um, I speak. So if you haven't read the briefing, just a quick reminder that um, you can do that on our website. Um, you can also get involved in the Medic Research Network. Again, there'll be a link in the chat for that just now. Um, get involved in the Climate and Health Campaign Group with Medact. And of course, make sure you join the Health for a Green New Deal online launch, which is taking place across two days on the 17th and 18th of April. Again, the link's there in the chat, or you can find details on our website. Um, so we're bang on 8.30, and um, I hope, that, hope you have a really good evening, and see you all again soon. Thank you for listening. You can find a full briefing on the MedAct website.
If you want to find out about future MedAct events, you can sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails.